over these next weeks, we're doing a series called Ruthless. Now, whether it's a good idea or not to call it Ruthless, I don't know, because I went on Google, and no one's ever called a series on Ruth Ruthless, ever, like in the world of internet. But I'm not bothered, because I read the Bible, and I think when the ruthless love encounters a ruthless world, amazing things happen. And we live in a ruthless world. We're going to talk about that because the context of Ruth is so similar in so many ways. You'll be astounded that how helpful a book that many preach like this love story in the middle of a tough time for God's Bible. It's like God's, the Bible got a bit boring, so God put a love story at the end of Judges. No, that's not what this is. If you want in context for this book, there's the Old Testament, New Testament. Hope you know that. And, and what separates it is Jesus comes. No, I'm being serious. I'm not being I'm sarcastic at all. I'm being serious. That, that, that Jesus comes and the New Testament comes, the new um, dispensation. But this story happens in the Old Testament. It's a projection, a picture towards Jesus coming. The promise of all that he does and the promise and the big story of this series and the whole of the Bible that there is always hope. No matter where you come from, for a brighter future in Christ, a life in Christ. So we are preaching this story, and um, today is the starter of a feast, a feast of His Word. I want to remind us that we don't, so sometimes I hear people preach about the Bible and speak of the Bible like they are holding the Bible and wielding the sword. No, the Bible's the sword. It doesn't need me to wield it. It, uh, it doesn't need me. I don't wield the Bible like some soldier. I receive the word of God upon my life, and when I allow it to dictate my steps, to dictate my life, and to call me into more greater knowledge of God, I walk in the fullness and the freedom of that. So Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, as we jump into this new series with great excitement, even if it's just for one more Ruth, God, if this whole series and all these weeks is just for one more Ruth, we say thank you, God. Spirit of God, have your way. We pray. Amen. Amen. So there are three main characters, and this week we're hardly going to preach about two of them. The first one is Naomi, and she's a widow in a foreign land, dragged there by her husband. Not actually dragged there, but taken there by her husband. And, um, and, and she becomes bitter. Then there's this lady, Ruth, who the book is named after, and she's this mobile test woman. Coming from a different background, the lineage of her story is incest and brokenness. And then there's Boaz, just an Israelite farmer with a heart after God to see his kingdom come. And the spoiler alert is the story starts off horrendously, but it ends great. <laughs> We're allowed to do that. This isn't Netflix. This is the Bible. You can read it for yourself. It'll take you about 20 minutes to read this whole book. So go and read it. Don't just come to church and say, I'm going to feast deeply on Sunday and you go away. No, this is, a, this is a good snack, a bit of high pressure fuel to come into your story like one of those whoop, whoop, and those Formula One things. Those little, I don't know what that is, but it sounded good. And, 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 but your job is to go and feast on the Word of God. And then we, we all grow. My title for today is called Famine, Faith, and Feasting. Are you ready? Write it down. Take down the notes. I think even just the highlights of today will help us. But this book starts, and the opening line of any book is important. And in the Bible, it's no different. It starts like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So it's, it's the days of the judges, which means we go look to judges. And the book of Judges ends in chapter 21 like this. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. 
Everyone did as they saw fit. These are the last two verses of the book of Judges, highlighting the situation and the chaos of the age. First and foremost, God's people have, well, you know what's just happened? They've just found wives. It says, go and find a wife, put them over your shoulder, run home and take them out. It doesn't happen like that anymore, guys. Sorry. That's not an option. This is not what church is. But that was the story here. And it says, go home. And the challenge is, in times of pressure and times of challenge, we all go back to our own inheritance. It doesn't sound bad, and it's not sinful. The challenge of a good inheritance sometimes, and we know it from history, is it spoils sometimes the next generation to make sh- and, and limits their ability to reach their potential in taking ground for what God has for them. So what's happening in the people of God is they're shrinking back and they're sliding back into their inheritance, sitting comfy on the lazy boy that daddy and his previous daddy and their daddy paid for. Secondly, it says, everyone did as they saw fit. Sound, sound a little bit like our world. This is my truth. This is my choice. This is my identity. This is my. Well, the problem is in the Bible, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about his truth, his way, his kingdom, and his eternity. So we need to be reminded, but it's amazing to see this book of Ruth is not just some love story in the middle of the Bible given for us to preach love to the church. It is to preach a ruthless love that pulls us before glorious king into a big story. And so in the days of Ruth, let me just give you five things that are going on. And maybe, maybe, maybe you hear some similarities about our age. The first one is this. There's anarchy. Everyone's just doing whatever they want. There is no king. And, and I hate to be topical and challenged, but it's times where previous presidents of nations won't be sit before the government that they ruled once to take judgment. It's times where, where big names come and, and where people take for themselves and, and we navigate that stuff. It's times where this is my identity, so you can do what you want. There's anarchy in every area, sexuality, destruction of families, everyone living for their own self. Secondly, there's famine in the land. Now, famine comes in many different forms and shapes. Famine looks like sometimes like there's no food in the, famine, in the food resources. Sometimes it's a pandemic that comes to a nation and brings famine. And even as I preach the series and I look at it across the hall, I know there are situations that are in famine right now. We as a nation are in famine. Our unemployment statistics are massive. But that's why we've got to go back to God. And I'm going to preach. I'm going to tell you why. Third of all, there's death. And we see it just in this micro story. There's death of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and his two sons. They all die. And there's family. There's probably much more death. And maybe you've been protected from it, or maybe you haven't. But in our community and in our city and in our nation, there's been death. And whether you believe the coronavirus and some of the deaths happens are a hoax or not, I've been to the funerals. Come with me. 56,000 people in our nation have died. At one stage, we were doing two funerals a week here at this facility. In our world, over 3 million people have died. And there's a whole bunch of other deaths. There's death around. Death is a reality we all have to face. Fourthly, there are bad decisions being made by good people. And we sometimes love to sit in our church pews or chairs and go, well, just bad people make bad decisions. No, the Bible's full of good people making bad decisions and presents the outcomes. It's not just bad people who make bad decisions. Good people often make bad decisions. There's also, and lastly, sexual confusion in this nation, this land, and in this story. Why? 
Well, Genesis 19 tells, speaks about Lot and his wife, and, 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 and they go to Sodom, and this place, Sodom and Gomorrah, where our word sodomy comes from, and we're not going to explain that right now. And, and um, it's just a whole bunch of chaos, and it's Lot and his wife called Salty, and it all goes wrong, horribly wrong. And, and what happens is the result that his daughter can't find a husband to make her pregnant, so she chases her dad, she corners him, she entraps him, and ends up sleeping with her dad, and the nation of Moab is birthed. And Ruth is a descendant of the nation of Moab. This is a whole nation birthed in sexual depravity and incest. Welcome to the Bible. These are the days of our lives. <laughs> so why and how Ruth? Well, this story keeps shouting to us that no matter what the birth of our story, it matters where we end. And I don't care how you came in these doors. You couldn't have come in worse than Ruth. But you know what Ruth's story ends in? She becomes the great-grandmother of King David in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus says, I don't care about your past. I'm going to keep writing my story with my blood over your past. It goes like this in Matthew 1, verse 5 and 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, who had her own brokenness and story. So her son saw the grace of God in her story. Then Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. A Moabites, a Moabites, I keep saying that wrong, but she was a Moabite woman. She was the lineage of incest, and yet she's in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. You don't believe in the grace of God? Well, then read the lineage of Jesus. It's all over it. It says this, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. It carries on in verse 17, Last there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This beautiful lady is in the lineage of our Savior and Messiah. It didn't matter where she starts because God's not scared of our mess. He doesn't write it off. He writes over it every time. And he keeps writing us into his story. Secondly, in line number one, yes, we're going to be here a while. It says there is famine in the land. And famine, again, takes many forms and shapes. But every time you see famine in the land in the Bible... Ask yourself this question, are they trusting God? And every time there's famine in your life, I'm telling you, this question should be asked, am I trusting God? In the Bible, there, one commentator was saying there are 14 presentations of famine, 14, five of which the Bible expressly states God commanded the famine because of disobedience. God had warned, and he had warned, and he had warned, and he had warned, and eventually said enough, famine. Two cases, there was famine in a nation or an army because they were besieged behind walls and they couldn't get food. But there are another seven cases of famine, including our one here in the book of Ruth in the time of Judges, where we don't know why there's famine. So let me tell you why there's famine sometimes. It's called the fall. It's called sin. It's called sin entering the word, world and brought brokenness to our world. It's called sometimes it's, 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 the, it's the lack of generosity in those who have to not give to those who don't have. So my point number one is this. Famine follows fear. Oh, come on, that's good. Every time. Famine follows fear. The challenge is sometimes we like the one-line scriptures, but they don't align. You don't see the, the patterns that evolve. And if you read the Bible, look for famine and look what always follows fear. I have a dog named Pilate. He's the sixth member of our family. He's an adopted child. He had issues, but we've walked with him and loved him, bought him all the good stuff. But he forgets how good we've been to him every time we feed him. See, we feed him in the morning, we feed him at night. Three minutes after we fed him, 
That's two. Three minutes after we fed him, he comes to me again. I'm eating toast. He's like, <laughs> I'm like, I've just fed you, dude. And he'll go to the kids and steal food off their plates. <laughs> and, and he's like, what are you doing? Because inside my little pilot, who should be named Famine, he keeps thinking the next meal's not coming. He has this built-in fear driven by his animal urges to satisfy his cravings and the premise that he knows he's got to feed himself. That fear drives him to acting in the way he does. But I'm telling you, it's not that different for us. When fear determines our steps, we follow it. And every time, famine follows fear. Every single time. Because we live in a fallen world. And it carries on. Yes, we're going to read more. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Sounds nice, huh? Sounds like one of those stories that you just told. They just went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. See, the challenge is a line like from Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem's not just a random little spot, like a holiday resort on the south coast. Bethlehem was where God chose to presence himself. Bethlehem was a precious place in God's story and the story of the Israelites and his people. Bethlehem was, and the name meant something powerful. It means the house of bread. To live in Bethlehem, to, to bind to the promises of God that regardless of the story God had shown the Israelites through the Exodus and through every other battle and victory he's given them, that he will provide regardless of whatever famine. In the middle of a desert, you don't call it famine, you just call it desert dwelling. Because there's not a lot of food around. There's no okay bazaars around the corner. So God says, I'm going to provide manna from heaven and water from rocks. Eliminate knew that. He knew that God, he had made a decision to leave the house of bread and go to a place because he saw food there on that day. It says to live for a while. And this is where I'm going to challenge your thought. He's not sinning. He's not sinning. But he is doing something. He's choosing not to trust God in the house of bread. He's choosing to not inquire of God. He's making a choice. And so often Christians' decisions are determined by one thing, it's not sin. Well, let's look at the fruit of these decisions and then let's review that statement. Because in the lineage of Ruth, there's a man called King David who gets celebrated a man after God's own heart and he's a king. He's the king of kings. He's the boss man in everyone's eyes. So let's look at his life. 1 Samuel 23 verse 2. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go back and attack these Philistines? You'll see he asked that question a lot. These guys were a nuisance. 2 Samuel 2 verse 1. Then it came back out afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? 2 Samuel 5. You're picking up a pattern. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? He said yes last time. David asked again. 1 Chronicles 14 verse 10. David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? 2 Samuel 5 verse 23, when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go directly up, circle around them and come back to the front. So he asked again, asked again, asked again, asked again. And then we see a strategy come from asking again. Why? Because God is God and it doesn't matter what man calls you, whether man calls you king, CEO, or the head honcho, God's still God. The amazing thing about Elimelech and his decision is Elimelech's name means my God is king. So he goes against the very identity given to him in his name, and he chooses to not trust the God of king, and he chooses to not inquire of a king. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I lived in the days of a king, 
I wouldn't be the commander of his army and just give them a month off without speaking to old Kingy. I think I would speak to him. I wouldn't just choose to go away and uh, you, you speak to your king. Why? Because with one word, your head is off. And we forget that God is a king and Elimelech forgot that God was the king who had provided in the desert. He'd taken them through seas. He'd taken them through rivers. He'd brought them to the promised land. He kept providing. And even though there was famine in that day, Elimelech chose to lose faith. Secondly, there was another issue. There was a challenge in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 to 6. No Ammonite or Moabite, Moab, Ruth, or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord or even down to the 10th generation. It's quite a big word. It's like, don't hang around with the dudes, don't make mates of them, definitely don't marry them to the 10th generation. It ends in verse 6, do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So Elimelech knew this. This would have been in the history. They would have had to study it. He would have known it. But he decided to live by his sight rather than to live by faith in the goodness and the providence of God. Again, is he sinning? Or is he just making decisions without bringing them before God and having God as his God? See, any decision in fear, famine brings fear. Don't get it wrong, in everyone's life. There's famine in your life, it brings fear. I see people jump from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. Why? Because of fear. Fear I'll be alone. Fear no one loves me. I see people jump from job to the slightly higher paying job to the slightly higher paying. Why? Just in case it runs out one day. And the expectation is God bless me wherever I jump. The problem is famine follows fear every time when I read the Bible. So I have to see that and go, okay, what does it help me? It carries on in verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left there with her two sons and her husband. The end result of Elimelech, I'm struggling with that one, Elimelech's decision. He dies, his two sons die, his wife gets left with no help, no hope, and no home. Maybe you've been left because of the decisions of other people, good people who made bad decisions with no help, no hope, and no home. I'm preaching Ruth for you. God gave us Ruth for you. God wants to do for Ruth what he'll do for you, what he'll do for Ruth. It's point number two, and I'll be a bit quick over these two. Faith opens futures. See, young people, you want futures? Trust God. I don't have anything else to say to you. I've worked hard. I've trusted God. I've done things, and the other here, test me. Many have worked hard. Many have given strategies of men. But trust God. See, Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Why? Just because she sees food. Again, Pilate. She's just running off their appetites. I'm not trying to be demeaning to her. I'm trying to bring it vivid to your mind and to mine that we get to make decisions. And often it's our cravings that determine our decisions. It says, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land. Maybe that's the word for you. Just set out. The prodigal son, he set out somewhere. Everyone celebrates the moment he comes back and the father and they also the father. No, but he set out first. Set out. Back to God, to his people, to his promises. 
Then Naomi said to her daughters, and Lord, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Again, her fears, being alone. So she says, go find another husband. She still doesn't get it that God is good. He's always been good. But Naomi, um, then she kissed him goodbye and wept aloud, and they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. She says, no. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could come to be your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old. This is where the Bible gets fun. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had husband tonight, and then gave birth to sons in nine months' time, like the lockdown babies, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi's returning bitter. She, she's returning bitter, but the power is in verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah and Ruth. Ruth clings to Naomi, a backslidden believer in God who didn't have faith and didn't have trust in God being driven by, but she'd been around a family who were God's people and she'd seen enough, she'd tasted enough, she'd heard the stories about this God of eternity, the God of the Israelite people. There were no guarantees that she'd be accepted. There were no guarantees she'd be pulled in, but she'd seen something, tasted something, so she clings to Naomi. And Orpah, she clings to what she knows. She clings to her past, her ability to navigate her life in Moab. She clings to what's familiar to her. She clings to what's comfortable for her. She clings to the promise that she knows what she's getting here. She doesn't know what she's going to get in that land. Jonah 2 verse 8, one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible, I believe. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Those who cling. So Orpah, she clings to her past, to Moab, to her broken story. What's the result? Ah, oh, we never hear of again. Oh, we do. 2 Chronicles. 2 Samuel 21 describes how she eventually gives birth to four boys. And she had such potential in her, they became giants. You know what happened to those four boys? Ruth's great-grandson chopped all their heads off. Because God will always have his way. So Orpah makes a decision, she clings, ends in death. Ruth makes a decision, she gets pulled into the lineage of Jesus. Yeah. Why? Because feasting, for faith opens, um, faith opens futures. And lastly, feasting follows faith. And I want to be quick with this. I want to jump to verse 22. Naomi tries to tell her, don't come with me, don't come with me. And they go back. And as they enter the land, the Bible says this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite whose daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Ruth clings to this backslidden believer because she's seen something of God. She clings to her as they arrive back home. She doesn't arrive to go sit in the back. There's no room in the end. No, she arrives at barley harvest time, which meant there's feasting. In God's laws, he'd put it that Israelites would welcome anyone who was in their land at that time and they could glean in the land. They could take, there was feasting for all. Ruth arrives to feasting. Why? Because feasting always follows faith. Yeah, this could be just a love story in the Old Testament to pep up the Bible for you. We paint Ruth as this beautiful woman done and, and, and Boaz comes to her rescue. Boaz is not a man. Boaz is Jesus every time. I'm not Boaz. I'm Ruth. 
I was excluded. It's only his blood. You were excluded. We love to read these stories and think, well, obviously we're the hero in the story. We're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be, no, I'm Ruth. I'm just pulled into a big story. I just arrived and there was feasting. All I had was a little bit of faith. And the challenges as we navigate this series is that there's some promises in the Bible, and one of them is this. Psalm 68, God says, The lonely in families, He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious will live in a sun-scorched land. You've got to read the Bible because it's pretty darn shocking. See, we think rebellion is a bunch of teenagers angry at life, kicking down a retail store and stealing Rolexes. That's not rebellion. Rebellion in the Bible is sons and daughters of the living God who have the ability to hear His voice and choose not to. That's rebellion. And a sun-scorched land sounds a lot like famine to me. I don't want to go to a sun-scorched land. This book is many things. And I can, we're going to preach many things about Naomi, about Limelech, about Boaz, about Ruth. But the big idea is trust God. Trust God. Jaira, trust God. Trust Him. Young people, you can trust Him. Older people, you can trust him. Maybe you're a widow. You can trust him. Maybe you're lacking faith and you're a bit bitter. We're going to preach. I can show you how you can be bitter and still walk into more in God and how God will heal you in that journey. Next month, we have a service for people who haven't done well in mourning loss. On a Saturday, we're going to have a service. People who've had miscarriages. So we can mourn together. Because the Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. You see, the church aren't always good at that. We're not good at times of famine. Why? Because our, 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 our Christus Victor theology doesn't always hold. And yet it always holds if we understand the Bible. Because He's always with us. So this series is going to change. Can you stand with me? We've got so much. I'm so excited for this series. Three points today. Famine, faith, and feasting. Famine follows fear every time. Faith opens futures every time. And feasting follows faith every time. Don't take my word for it. Read your Bible. The book that's been printed more than any other. It's every nation, every language. Read your Bible. Find Jesus in every line. Allow Him to reveal Himself as your King. And then like Ruth, make a decision. It might not be logical and it might not be practical and the world might say that's your truth but not my truth. But you make a decision on what is His truth. And then you kick into a different economy. You get pulled into the genealogy of Jesus. I'm in the genealogy. I follow. My name's not there but I follow. Can we close our eyes for a second? This series is going to challenge how you make and how you've made decisions. It's going to bring up ideas like, why did I do that? Why didn't I do that? And I'm telling you, that's good. But don't sit on your own and think about it. Read your Bible and ask God to show you His heart. Because we've got to be making decisions for God. We want His blessing and His best for every one of His sons and daughters. But to step into that is to say, God, I trust you. Our Father who art in heaven, I trust you. 
my Father who art in heaven. I trust you. It doesn't matter what I see with my eyes. If there's famine all around, brokenness and death, depravity all around, I trust you. If the condemnation of man or the words have spoken upon my heart, I pray, God, I trust you. I will place my trust in the Almighty who reigns above it all, sings beyond it all, who is greater than it all, who moves mountains with the smallest of faith. We come to you at this time and we declare, God, we trust you. You are my God. You are my King. So we trust you, God.